Going through Second uh, Peter, now, and we're going to do chapter three, which should finish us up. We should finish the book tonight, unless I get long-winded somewhere along the way, which has happened. Uh, but uh, let's we'll try we'll try not to tonight. Try to finish up Second Peter three. That gives us a couple more Tuesday nights up till Easter which we will focus in on uh, some of those things leading up to the death of Christ because there's so much to say that on Sunday morning I can't possibly say it all. So uh, we will probably next week and the week after be talking about some of the other events leading up to the death of Christ. Uh, and we'll focus on that as we turn all our thoughts towards that topic as we get closer to Good Friday. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, this is a, a guy, this Peter is a guy that you would just like. You couldn't help but like him. He's one of the guys when you read through the Bible you think, man, he's a great guy. You really would like to meet this guy you hear him in in the Gospels saying and doing crazy things, and he's just my kind of guy. I think I'd really enjoy him. Jesus enjoyed him. Jesus liked to be with him. <clears throat> Jesus was the one who said to him in the end, now take care of the other folks, take care of the flock. And that's what he's doing here in this chapter. And you'll find here in this chapter particularly, he's just a regular guy. And not everybody who wrote the Bible was a regular guy. I mean, some people uh, were, uh, you know, educated. Some people were kings, all sorts of things. This is just a guy like you and me. Peter's just a regular guy. And so I think when you read it, uh, some of the things we'll cover tonight, uh, you see that uh, this is the kind of guy I like to see writing part of the Bible because he's like you and me. And God doesn't ask uh, for people to be educated, although he does use educated people sometimes. Sometimes he doesn't. In the Old Testament, you got Amos, who said, all I did was wander around and pick wild fruit for a living. Uh, you can't make much of a living picking wild sycamore. All right, but that's what he did. And uh, just a farmer. And he said he was a farmer. And so uh, every once in a while, God picks plain, ordinary, everyday people, and they serve him in a special way. And Peter's one of these guys. He's a fisherman. He's a little rough around the edges. And now he's smoothed out and serving the Lord and writing these words because the same thing in First Peter as in Second Peter. I want to remind you. I want to make sure you know what you're supposed to do. And one of the things, of course, is to remember the Bible. Here we go. Uh, chapter 3 of Second Peter. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Or I'm trying to write these so that you remember what's important. And I want you to not be forgetful of that. 
verse 2, that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he's saying in the Old Testament, we have those words by the prophets. In the New Testament, which as I told you, didn't exist when he was writing this. In the New Testament, he says, we listen to the apostles. He's one of them. Listen to us, and we tell you about Jesus. And so he's reminding us to read our Bible. And we do that every day. I hope you do that every day. If you have problems with that, get a simpler version. I keep two or three different types of Bibles all around the house. I got stacks of them all over. So that wherever I am, I can grab a Bible and read it. And I keep a simple version, the Phillips version, so that I can read that too. I read that all the time because it helps. All right. So he says, make sure... You're mindful or you you work on your Bible. Read it. Pay attention to it. It's what you need to do. Three, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. Now Peter's going to take us now into the last days, what he calls the last days. Uh, the closer we get to the end of time, the closer we are to the last days. And we're a lot closer than he was. We're 2,000 years closer. And so uh, this becomes more and more uh, something for us to think about. He's explaining what's going to come towards the end of time. And you'll see it really fits. And uh, so he uh, is being a prophet here himself. God Remember what Peter said. People who wrote the Bible, God was whispering in their ear and telling them what to say. And now he's whispering in Peter's ear. And he's telling him 2,000 years in the future what's going to happen. And he says they're going to come people who are scoffers. Scoffers. That is, uh, they make fun of things that we believe. And that particularly gets under uh, Peter's skin. As of course, whenever somebody's uh, scoffing, making fun of, uh, poking fun at uh, anything that has to do with religion and Christianity in particular, of course, the ultimate point is that they're making fun of Christ. All right? Don't forget that. And that's why he's got his haggles up because. Uh, he is loyal to Jesus. He's loyal to Jesus. And when these people come along making fun of Christianity, poking fun at it, uh, he says, uh, I want you to know they're coming. They walk after their own lusts or they do what they want to do. And they're going to be coming. You get ready for them because they will be making fun of and making light of the scriptures, the Bible, and ultimately turns to Christ. They're going to be making fun of him. And they're going to say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? So everything that we believe as Christians has a culmination. 
You say, well, we believe that Christ died on the cross. Yes, he did. We believe he rose from the dead. And he did those wonderful miracles, and he came to earth and did what nobody else can do. Yes, he did. But the culmination of that is he will come back to earth. He's coming back. He's going to return to this earth. And these scoffers, people who make fun of the Bible, say, well, where is he? Why isn't he here? Where's the promise of his coming? All right, and the promise of his coming, Jesus himself promised. Uh, remember when he ascended up into heaven, the angels came down. and said, what are you guys doing? Because the apostles were... <laughs> Looking up, looking up. I said, what are you doing? Well, he just went up. He said he's going to come back down the same way he went up. And so he's going to return. And just you watched him go up. Well, that's what's going to happen. You're going to watch him come down. He is going to return. And so the scoffers come along and say, you've been saying that for a year. You've been saying that for hundreds of years. Jesus is coming and Jesus is coming and he doesn't come. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And so these scoffers say, look, you've been saying Jesus is going to come. He doesn't come. He doesn't come. And our fathers died, and our grandfathers died, and their great-great-great-great-grandfathers all died, and they're all dead, and he didn't come yet. Matter of fact, we can keep going back and going back, if you want, right to the beginning of time. And Jesus, where is he? We don't see him anywhere. That's not what how things are. And so he says, five, for this, they willingly are ignorant of. All right, so here's something he says that these scoffers don't want to know. Boy, we're surrounded with that, aren't we? We don't tell me. I don't want to know. I'm not going to listen. I'm only going to think what I want to think. And he says, these are things that they're willingly ignorant of. Or they say, oh, I don't know nothing about that. That's irrelevant. It's not, it doesn't matter. He says, they are willingly ignorant of this. <clears throat> that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And so, he says... People say that God never did anything. God's just been sitting up there somewhere uh, letting things happen. He goes, no, let's go back to the beginning. And uh, at creation, God did something. He saw something happen in the world. We can look right back there. It's not complicated. Genesis chapter number uh, 1. Because we get a explanation. Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning of your Bible. As God is creating, in verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the water called he seas, and God saw that it was 
good. And so uh, one day, uh, well, in the beginning, the world was covered with water. The world was underwater. And, that, and then he says, God stepped in and separated the water from the land. And how did that happen? Well, I think you can kind of see how it happened. Uh, when, when you look at the world itself, here's these mountains that go way up in the sky. How they get there? Well, the earth went cracked and shifted and this big old rock came up out of the water and left a hole down the bottom. Simple enough. All right. God made the mountains move and all of a sudden, boy, that must have been a, a time, man. Wow. When all of a sudden God said, all right, let's separate the water. And the earth cracked and snapped and twisted and uh, came rising up out of the ocean, out of the water, which covered the world, and it all uh, went down into what we call now dry land and ocean, all right, sea. Um, there are people who think that between verse 1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. They believe that there's what they call a gap there. I am inclined to agree. And you're going to say, well, prove it, prove it. I can't prove it. I'm just inclined to agree. All right? I'm inclined to agree that God made the heavens and the earth, and everything he ever put his hand to was perfect. Now, when we watch creation in Genesis, uh, everything he says, as soon as he makes it, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. And when he's done, he says, it's very good. And certainly it was. Isn't, it? Isn't creation fabulous? And so uh, we believe, some people believe, that this planet was the center of activity uh, way back before Adam and Eve, before this creation. So God created this planet and this world, and Satan had access. And then when Satan rebelled against God, uh, God destroyed the world by water. And it says the earth was without form and void. And that word void, without form and void, is actually chaos. And so we get God creating the heavens and the earth and chaos? That seems not right, does it? And so probably something happened. Verse 1, he created the world. Satan rebelled, and who knows all that happened there. And we get little hints of it through the Bible, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. And both of those chapters tell you little hints about what happened. And... Uh, and so God uh, judged this place and destroyed it, put it underwater, and it's chaos. And he says there's chaos there. Well, everything is underwater. Now God's going to create again. And so if that's the case, if it's not, it's not, okay? But a lot of people think that, and I tend to agree. So there was the first creation which is underwater, 
in chapter 1, verse 2, it's underwater, and we get then a second creation, and what God does is he uh, divides land and sea. He divides land and sea. And so if you're saying that God never did anything, God never stepped in, God never did what he was supposed to do, he said, oh, wait a minute. We go right back here, and God's doing things. All right, now let's go back to our passage. <coughs> and verse 6 of 2 Peter 3, whereby the world that was being overflowed with water perished. All right, and so... Then we have another time, which is in Noah's time. In Noah's time, and God once again destroyed the earth with water. So we had water covering the world, and then God steps in, divides the water from the land. Now we have dry land and, wa and water. And then... God brings the water back together. Because actually he divided two things. He divided because there was water in the air. And water like we know on the ground. And he divided that and separated that and made uh, atmosphere first. Right, and so all the water and the water vapor was there. He divided it, made atmosphere first, and then he separated the dry land and made that. Now, in Noah's time, he brings it all back together. And so it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Where did all that stuff come from? Well, God said, I got a lot of water down there. Let's put it all back together. And it all went back together, and the whole world is underwater again. All right. I just saw on TV the Grand Canyon, uh, something for a few minutes about the Grand Canyon. And uh, they said, this is a mysterious thing, can't figure it out. It's easy to figure out. It's pretty simple to figure out. The water uh, covered the earth, and then uh, this flood came, and so everything is underwater, and then it suddenly sweeps down out and overflows everything and cuts out the Grand Canyon in 20 minutes. Maybe not 20 minutes, but not long. All right? I don't think that's a mystery at all. That's very explainable by Noah's flood. And so what are these people saying, these scoffers? Eh, God never does nothing. He just, you say he's up there. He's not doing anything. He's just sitting up there. Oh, no. And he says, the world itself was underwater, and he brought dry land. And then, and this is what he says they are willingly ignorant of. When the human race was in full rebellion until there's only one family left that believes. Only one family in the whole world that believes. God says, okay. And he saw Noah. And it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He said, I'll save him. Because I was going to start over and get rid of the whole thing. 
but he's okay. I'm going to save him. So he built an ark, 120 years of building an ark and all the time preaching. God's going to destroy this place. Why are you building a boat? What's that thing you're building? It's a boat. What's it for? Float on water. You're up on dry land. What are you, stupid? Yeah. <laughs> and they scoffed at Noah. They scoffed at Noah. He said, it's coming. That's why I'm building this boat. And you can get on with me if you get your act together. Now, they said they laughed until it started to rain. And when it started to rain, they saw it wasn't just a little sprinkle. It's coming. It's coming. It says the fountains of the deep opened. Uh, besides the rain for 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says the fountains of the deep opened. So uh, underground caverns uh, cracked open and big geysers came out of the ocean. And just it was incredible. Uh, so the flood wiped these people out. And so he says, you say God's just sitting up there not doing anything and he's never going to come. Well, God did this. Well, we don't want to hear about that. Don't tell us. No. I'm telling you that God will not always wait. You need to understand that. Verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, here's uh, something that you haven't heard before, because it doesn't mention it. Peter's the one that God trusted with this information, and he gave it to him, and he said, now, the next time God comes with this creation, uh, he's going to burn the world. It's going to be on fire. And so he says he destroyed it with water, Noah's time, and what did he do? He put a bow in the sky, rainbow, and he said, that's my promise, never to destroy the world again with water. So every time you see a rainbow, there's God. There's his promise. He's never going to flood this world again. People have said to me, uh, what would you do if there was a huge flood? I said, i live by the swamp, no problem. <laughs> All right. I'm up on a little hill. That swamp is huge. You fill it with water and off it goes. No, not really. Okay. <laughs> uh, but what he says is the last time that the Lord destroys the world, it will be with fire. That's how God's going to do it the last time. And he says in seven, the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store. Or in other words, God... Um, and the Bible says he upholdeth all things by the word of his power. So gravity functions by the word of God's power. Centrifugal force is there because God says it and holds it there. Everything that seems to be working as natural things in the world are exactly held there by God saying it to be so. And so he is keeping 
this world in place now, but it's reserved, he says, unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Just like in Noah's time, the destruction came because people turned their back on God. These scoffers are going to make fun of God and, and it's going to bring about a day of judgment. Verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, what does that mean? Well, you and I cannot help it. Uh, we are bound by the clock, Right? I watch that stupid clock all the time. Every day I look at a clock. I hate looking at a clock, but I look at it day after day, day in and day out, tells me when to do this, tells me when to do that, and I live my life, and you do too, according to a clock. That's how we work. And we live in a world that's dominated by uh, time and space, and so we are always counting the passing of time. That's how we view life. And we can't look at it any other way because we're in this dimension. Time is passing and it's passing us by, right? Anybody feel like you did 10 years ago? Time is passing you by. All right, time is passing us by. So. Uh, we're bound to think that way. We can't help it. But he said, God doesn't think that way. He is outside of time. And if you can think about time, we say, well, when did it start? Well, it started in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on and on and on until fire, he says, comes. That's the end of time. All right, and there's time. God is out here. He's outside of time. This is eternity. And he says, the passing of a thousand years, it's a long time, isn't it? A thousand years, he says, is just like a day with God. Because he does not view what happens according to time. You got that? No, you don't got it. I don't got it either. All right? We can't wrap our head around how God thinks. But God is not up there saying, well, boy, it's getting late. I got to get going. Right? That's not how God thinks. And that's very important about what we're about to say. All right? So he says, God doesn't view the world saying, well, I gotta, it's been 2,000 years, I guess I better get going. Because if it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came, he, he just said, well, that's like two days. It's nothing to God. It's nothing to God. And so, uh, it's hard for us to think in terms the way that God looks at it. And so, as he's looking at the world, that these scoffers are poking fun at, and they're well, where's Jesus? He didn't come. 
He didn't come. We've been waiting all this time. He didn't come. That's not how God, he's not up there thinking, man, it's been a long time since I was down there. That's not what he's thinking. It's, to him, it's like two days. Okay, it's two days. And so he is looking at something else. He's not looking at the passing of time. All right, now what's he looking at? Here we go. Nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. That's quite a statement. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness. Uh, you know, if you say, well, I'll be at work in the morning and you show up at noon, they say, well, you're a slacker. Where were you? You're a slacker. You're slack. That means you're not getting a job done and you're just plain slow. Slow. And the scoffers say that God is slow. After all, he said he was coming and it's been 2,000 years. Where is he? Where is he? He says, is he a slacker? No. He says, he's not slack the way people count slackness. Well, how do we count slackness? A passing of time. You didn't get it done. You didn't accomplish what you were supposed to do. You're too slow. All right. Here's what, here's how God views the world. And this issue of when is he coming? All right. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He made a promise he's coming, as some men count slackness, or they say he's slow. But is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the best verse that Peter wrote right there. So why is God waiting all this time? Because he's patient. Patient with what? Patiently waiting for people to come to him, to respond to the message, to listen to what is being said, and to get it inside their hearts and get themselves right with God. He's waiting. And Jesus told a wonderful story about a farmer. And you re might remember the story. There was a tree, fig tree. And they said, this tree got no fruit on it. So if it's got no fruit, cut it down. And the farmer said, no, wait, let's wait. What are you going to do? Well, we're going to fertilize it, trim it up nice and Get a, every, and give it every advantage and every possibility and we're going to lay it out and maybe next year it'll have fruit. Right? And so Jesus tells a story about the tree and the farmer who said, no, 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 let's wait. Let's be patient. And give it every advantage. And the next year, what? Well, did it? Well, let's wait another year. Let's wait. And God keeps waiting. What's he waiting for? Because he doesn't want anybody to die. 
He doesn't want anybody to die. Not one. He is not pleased with the death of anybody at all. He prefers that they would all live. That's what he's willing. That they should all live. Nobody die. I don't want people to die. I want them to live. But they're going to have to come to repentance. And so why has it been 2,000 years? And why does God seem slow? Because he is patiently giving you another chance, another chance, and another chance, and another chance. Over and over and over and over again. Yes, thank God you said it. Thank God that he's so patient with us that he will wait and wait. And, and so that the scoffers say, he's not coming. What's he doing up there? He's waiting for us to turn to him. That's what he's doing. And so, see, he's not looking at a clock saying, well, it's two hours, I got to go. He's instead looking into the hearts of people and saying, oh, if I could just win that one, and it's going to take a little longer, and we're going to be patient and wait. So that's how God views his return. Because a day will come when that will happen. All right, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, when the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. There you go. Now, if we put this in line with the rest of the Bible, um, We're going to give it a timeline, a little bit of a timeline, which I think we can do uh, fairly easily. Um, the scoffer said, uh, he's not coming, and they make fun of it. Right? But he says, Jesus will return. And we know from several places in the Bible that when he returns, he's going to reign for a thousand years. He's going to set up a kingdom. And he's going to reign for a thousand years. It's called the millennial reign of Christ. And basically, to describe it as best as I can, <coughs> he comes down here to this earth when earth is disastrously a mess. Anytime. And they have been fooled by Antichrist, the ultimate scoffer. Okay? And they've swallowed the message of Antichrist and been fooled by it. And so he comes down, puts an end to that rebellion, sets up his kingdom on the earth as we know it. This world right here, he sets up the world. He's going to show us how government was supposed to work. Now, we got lots of examples of how it's not, don't we? We got plenty of that. 
He's going to come down and set up a kingdom and show us how government will work. And that's when the Bible says he's going to beat, we're going to beat uh, our weapons into plowshares. We're going to become productive. All right, instead of fighting, he's going to show us how that should be done. And Christians are going to be part of the government. And you're going to have to go and teach. If you know, you've learned your Bible, God may say, okay, you got a spot where we need you to teach? You go teach. I'm sending you to do that. And it says, in that day, teachers will shine like the sun. Or in other words, the teaching will permeate this kingdom of Christ. Uh, and the end of all that, and that's still in this world as we know it today, just like it is. So if we come down on a day like a day, return to this earth, just as he left, he comes down, takes over, destroys Antichrist, sets up a kingdom, reigns for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, Satan is released. Right. Say you take one more try. You say, well, what could he do now? People around the world have seen how it's supposed to be, and they've lived in this peaceable kingdom of Christ. They're not going to bother Satan. Oh, no, they're going to go after him because they have rebellion in their hearts. And as soon as he rises up one last time, they go after Satan, and then they get squashed. That's it. The end of them. That's the end of all rebellion. Then comes Judgment Day. All right. So Satan is released. Then we have the Day of Judgment. And on the Day of Judgment, every man, every woman, every child must give account. You got to stand up and give account in front of the entire world's population. Won't that be something? Stand up and give account and say, here's what I did, here's what I didn't do. I can't do enough to fill that day. Get it? I can't do enough to make that day okay. So when I finally get there and stand up, I'll say, here's what I did. But it was only the mercy of God that made me do it. And he'll say, that's how it works. Now you got it, okay? So we have the final judgment day. And then what happens, we're off in eternity. Time is over. Finished. No more time. We're in eternity with God. And he said, now, let's do this creation thing one more time. So, we're going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And over in Revelation chapter number 21. Revelation chapter 21. This is what happens on that day. Revelation 20 is a judgment day. Everybody is judged. Everybody gives account. 
Revelation 21, judgment is over. What happens next? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So in the new world, when God creates it, he's not going to have a sea like he has now covering two-thirds of the world. He just said, I'm not going to have that. It's going to be all property. Okay. So what's the fire all about? Clean up the mess. I don't think that's real complicated. Uh, go to a city, any city, and go to some part of that city that's been abandoned. What a mess. Old buildings falling down. Uh, you know, it's just, they're a mess. And God's going to say, you know what? We're going to clean up human debris. Now, I don't know how he does it. He could just light a match. <laughs> or he could move the sun a little closer to the earth for a while. And anyway, he's going to get rid of everything that humans have left behind. Uh, cement, buildings, roads, all of it. Whoosh, gone. So that there's no more anything left on earth that God didn't make. And then he's going to make the new thing. Verse 2, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither any more pain, for the former things are past away. So everything in the world like we know is gone and God brings two dimensions together. Now there's a dimension called heaven and that's where God's throne is and then there's a dimension called earth and that's where we live in a time-space continuum. But he says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. It's a city made in heaven that will come down to earth. And when people try to figure out the dimensions, because the Bible does give dimensions, they say, they take a guess, it's about the size of Europe. It's about the size of Europe. So it makes me believe that they're building it now. Right? That when our grandfathers and great-grandfathers and the rest of the people we know go up to heaven. They're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs waiting for the world to go by. Uh, they're busy. And I'm sure that they're building this magnificent city as big as Europe. I mean, it's fabulous. And it comes down out of heaven and sets itself on the world. And there you have this fantastic city uh, it's a huge, huge city. Plus, the whole world is now can be traversed any way that you want because there's no sea. All right. And uh, he says, I'm going to make everything new. And that's what he'll do the next time. So uh, that's kind of, the, I would say, the timeline on how it unfolds. Jesus returns, reigns for a thousand years. Satan gives his final rebellion. 
Judgment comes, everybody must give account, and then a new world created, burning off the old debris, ready for God to start over again. Okay, now let's go back to Peter and see where that leads us. Verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, seeing all the things that you think are important are going to be burned up in ashes, what manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for hastening to the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. If you know that this is what's coming, you know that that's how the world ends. He said, what type of person should you be? Should affect the way you behave. So, so you ought to be, he says, in all holy conversation. That's lifestyle and godliness. And be like God. Uh, be thinking about God. All right. And so focus your life on God. Straighten your act out. Because the day is coming when these things are going to be over. And you can't join the scoffers and say, ah, just wait. Remember a guy telling me, I'm going to wait till I'm almost dead before I accept the Lord so I can have fun in the meantime. That's bad policy, okay? <laughs> really bad policy. Nevertheless, 13, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Won't that be something? Therefore, beloved, seeing you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. All right, so here's what's your goal, to be at peace. To be at peace, first of all, with God. And you can have peace with God. He's easy to get along with. You don't have to fight with him. You can be at peace with God, peace with your own conscience, like cleaning up your act so your conscience doesn't have anything to complain about, and then peace with the people around you. You want peace with the people around you. And certainly in a world like we live in where all they want to do is fight, that's all they want to do. The last thing they care about is peace. All right? This world today care less about peace. They only want to fight. And so he said, don't you be like that. You pursue peace without spot and blameless. He says, keep your life on a good track. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And the more God is waiting, the more he can save. And you and I have the mission now, in this world, as it gets meaner and darker and more confusing, we have a mission to say, we got a truth. We got it. You can come here and we'll give it to you. We'll tell you the truth. We have a mission in that. Because that, why? God is waiting to bring people to him. And anything we can do is what he wants done. That's what he wants done. Okay? <clears throat> now, 
Here's where he gets right down to be a regular guy, just like us. Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to be understood. All right, now Paul and Peter had a little bit of a history. They did meet each other, and back in the book of Galatians, you can find a little story about uh, when Paul and Peter met, and it might surprise you a little bit, because uh, Paul uh, was not a guy to mince any words. And I'm looking at Galatians 2, reading verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, Paul is writing, I withstood him, Paul withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that came certain from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew, separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews assembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. In other words, Peter was eating with any old buddy that came along. And then some Jewish friends came from Jerusalem. And he goes, ooh, I better not be messing now with these Gentiles. Better eat with the Jews today. And Paul said, hey, wait a minute. You can't do that. Verse 14, when I saw that they walked not upright according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why compellest the Gentiles to do as the Jews? And so he gave it to Peter right between the eyes. <laughs> he said, you're, you're being a hypocrite. I don't like it. Now, you'd think that would kind of put him, that relationship on edge, wouldn't you? <laughs> Peter knows better. He says, our beloved brother Paul, back in Second Peter, according to the wisdom given him, has written things to you. He's got nothing bad to say about Paul. He says, Paul, in all his epistles, speaking of these things, which are sometimes hard to be understood... Now, anybody that's read Paul's writings, and we've talked about it here many times here, they're not easy. Read the book of Romans and your head will go, oh, wow, what was that? Read Galatians, it's just as hard. Hebrews, difficult things. Why was it so? I think because to go from the Old Testament to an old temple, sacrifices, high priests, and all the things that they did to go to the New Testament where all that stuff was going to become obsolete, but it still had purpose in that it was a shadow of things to come. All right? Christ was the reality. The old high priest was the shadow. Okay? And so the Old Testament had purpose. Paul went and tied the two together. And it took an extremely brilliant mind to do that. As far as I'm concerned, he's the greatest mind of all times. He makes Einstein look like an idiot. And I say that without any 
hesitation because he took the things of God and figured out how they all went together. Without him, I don't know if we could have done that. I don't think we could have tied the Old Testament and the New together without Paul's explanation. But sometimes when you read the book of Romans, you think, man, why does he got to talk like a lawyer? Because he was a lawyer, that's why. And he talks like a lawyer sometimes. I remember when we were doing the, the church, and my brother-in-law is a lawyer, and I asked him to... Uh, write up a document. He says, okay, uh, somebody write this down. The party of the first, uh, according to the party of the second, blah, blah, blah. he went on and on, and I said, what the world is he talking about? I thought we were just going to write a document. Well, he was, in lawyer language. All right, and Paul speaks lawyer language. And so, it's very difficult. He was necessary. And Paul is brilliant. Peter is not nearly as brilliant as Paul. Not nearly, but it's okay because he's got he's got God with him. See, that's why I like him because I'm not Paul, all right. But I don't mind trying to be Peter. Now here's what he says, and this is important. Sixteen. Also in his epistles, speaking to them of these things, which are sometimes hard to be understood. And we've read those books. We know what he means. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Or in other words, they take Paul's words and they twist it around to mean something, anything but what it's supposed to mean. And they do that, he says, with all the Bibles. Matter of fact, these scoffers are going to take the words of the Bible and twist it around so it means something else. They rest it, he says, or that is, uh, they pull it out. Basically take it out of context. And the world is just full of that today. There's a couple of guys on TV who are always talking about sowing your seed, sowing your seed. I get so sick of it, I want to. Sowing your seed. You send us your money, and you'll make more. So sow your seed with us. We need your $19 a month, or your $200, or some of you are going to give us $1,000. Matter of fact, God just told me 100 of you are going to give us you know, it goes on and on and on. They're taking the scripture uh, where it does say we are to be sowers of seed. doesn't mean that at all. They're resting it or twisting it out of context and using it to mean whatever they feel like it. And he says they do it to their own destruction. Or the Bible that was meant to set them free and get to know God and make them understand life and grasp the meaning of what it is to live for God. That Bible, they're using it for other purposes and they're, instead of having it help you grow, you're destroyed. All right, Verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. All right? You know these things you've learned. We've talked about God's patiently waiting, why he's waiting, why time seems different to God than it is to us, how the world is 
unfolded in the beginning and how it's going to unfold in the end. God is not slack. He guarantees that it's going to be so. So we got to live the way we should, he says. So be careful. Watch yourself. Don't get messed up by these scoffers who make fun of the Bible, make fun of Jesus in particular, as that's what got under Paul or Peter's skin. But verse 18, grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord's and Savior Jesus Christ. Then be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow up, he says, and know God. Two things. Grow up, know God, and it'll be to the glory of God in the end. There's Peter. There's Peter uh, doing his thing, uh, leading the church, helping us to understand how the world works and how God works. Okay? Thank you. And that finishes that. Thank you. Thank you.